All right, good morning, everybody. Uh, welcome to our church again. My name is Chris. I'm one of the pastors here, so if you're visiting, welcome. I'm glad you're here to worship with us. And we are in a series right now in the book of Matthew, so we're uh, moving into a time of uh, preaching right now. And really, we've been in Matthew now since December. We started it in connection with Advent and the Christmas season. And we'll be in it for a little, little while longer. It's a 28-chapter book. It's been really great so far. We'll learn a ton about Christ and about his gospel and us throughout the process like we do every Sunday, uh, but now through the vantage point of a gospel account. So the gospel accounts, we talk about those, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the first four books of the New Testament, uh, constitute the, what we call the theological history of Jesus' birth, his ministry, his early ministry, his call to ministry, uh, and then the uh, middle portions of his ministry where he talks a lot about the cross and embodies grace, demonstrates the fact that God is here to rescue, and really builds the whole story to the cross. And if that's a new concept to you, I really encourage you in that. Everything in the Bible is about the cross. So when you read it, read it as though that is the case, and it will speak to you and just make a lot more sense than it would otherwise. It's not a random list of precepts or a random collection of stories. It is all about Jesus all the time. And not just about the man Christ, the God-man Christ, but about his work for us on the cross. So we're still pre-cross then, pre-death and resurrection of Jesus now in these portions of Matthew. So part of what we're trying to do is help show that. And it's always a part of our goal through preaching is to teach as well and to show how the Bible hangs together, how to read it, how great it is, how majestic it is, how it's impossible that a, a person or a collection of people could have actually written this to hang so well together over centuries and centuries and centuries of time. Uh, it had to be God. And so uh, and that's another encouragement for you too. When we read, uh, and we always, we try to do this on a regular basis. I want to freshly encourage you with this today. Hear the word of God today, the Bible, as though it's God wanting to say something to you. Otherwise, you'll just hear it as a great piece of literature. And if that's how you read the Bible, that's all it will ever be. That's the most it will ever be to you is a pretty great book about someone that might be accurate, might not, uh, written pretty well. Uh, most acknowledge that on a secular level at least. But if it's the word of God, to you, if it's God wanting to say this to you even today, that you're here for a reason. We're all here for a reason to hear what he has to say to us uh, in Matthew 12. Then it's going to mean a lot more to you and it's going to much more positively affect your life than it would otherwise. And so it's his word. Praise God. And praise God he speaks to us too, right? He's not aloof. He's very active in the world. We see that in the personal work of Christ and we see it in the, in the sense that we have the Bible. This is a very big book and he has many things to say to us because he loves us. And he wants us to know who he is, what his character is, how he's working in the world to save. And we're going to talk about that today as well. What, what we believe about him is really closely connected to what we believe his mission is, uh, why he came at all. And so we're going to see that like we do frequently here every week, really. It's really going to come to the forefront today, too, in today's passage. So remember, Christ is, uh, we're in a mini-series now of, of the greater series, Matthew, declaring and demonstrating the gospel of the kingdom Remember that one of the things that he's doing is correcting misperceptions about himself. A lot of people thought he's here to overthrow Roman rule in the land. Uh, Romans were occupying uh, the Israeli area and these different provinces they had set up in the area. Uh, Jesus is in Galilee at this time, for example. It's a Roman province of the day, uh, northern areas of, of Israel. But it wasn't really Israel's land yet. They had been cast out centuries before. They didn't really get it back. And a lot of people were expecting a Messiah to take up arms, literally, physically, against the Romans. And in that way, he would be politically zealous against them. And in that way, rule is their king. A lot of people were just misreading the scriptures, misreading the Bible that way, and expecting that type of Messiah. Jesus comes into the world and basically says and demonstrates, I am here to overthrow sin. I am here to be zealous. I am like a loving husband who's seen his wife threatened by another man. And I am zealous and angry. And I'm here to fight a battle, but it's not the battle many of you expected. It's a much more important and significant one. It's a battle against sin and death and the devil and your, your hard hearts against me, your state of rebellion. I'm here to overthrow that. And in that way, be king. In that way, be a savior. In that way, give you an inheritance in myself. And in that way, give you a home and protect you. And do all those things that good kings do, even today, but especially in the scriptures in the Old Testament, he was the ultimate, final, good king of God sent into the world. And so he's basically then, he's doing a lot of things, but one of the things he's doing, one of the threads of the gospel accounts is correcting misperceptions about himself. We see a lot of that. Today's a big piece to that, today's passage. But a big piece to it too is reading ourselves into that. God wants us to have the right perception, the right understanding of why he came into the world. And so uh, he speaks and demonstrates his mission in many and various ways, ultimately leading us to the cross to say, here, put his finger on that and say, this is why I came. 
This is why I arrived. Don't muddy the waters and add to that. This is why I've arrived in the world, to die in your place, to atone for your sin, to slay death and darkness and the devil in your old heart and win you back for myself. That's the mission of God in the world in the person and work of, of Jesus Christ. So, great background to, today, to every passage you read in Scripture. It's all about that Old and New Testament. But today, he's doing a lot of that correcting of misperceptions and it's going to spill over into today's passage as well in uh, Matthew 12. The uh, passage is uh, verses uh, 22 to 37, and we're going to look at this idea of the unforgivable sin today. Uh, Jesus talks about what he calls the blasphemy or extreme slander of the Holy Spirit, and he talks about what that means, but he calls it unforgivable. So there is one thing that Jesus says is not forgivable by God in the Bible, and he talks about it today in context with these Pharisees, uh, religious rulers of the day, Jewish people, and this, this other crowd that had gathered and witnessed a, a miracles, we'll see here, a healing, and there's negative response, and he talks to those people and says, you've got, you be warned. There's one thing God will not forgive. So, very important, right? There's like, if there's any greater question that we can ask or answer, I don't know what it is, because it's so closely connected with who is Jesus. And if it's, if our eternal destiny is at stake here, what's forgivable and what's not, uh, it should perk us up, and we should hear God's voice here, because he wants us to know. He wants us to be forgiven. He loves us deeply, more than we think. And so we should throw up our antennas and really tune in here to what the teachings of Christ are in context with this miracle and heed the call. It's very confronting today in a very good way. It hurts, but it's good <laughs> to hear this stuff. Uh, so let's read that in three sections. I'm going to read verses 22 to 29 to begin, and then we'll read the unforgivable sin portion will come in the middle, and the third section's response, just more about response. He hones in on these people that are rejecting him and disbelieving and speaks to them. So we should hear ourselves in that as well. First of all, 22 to 29 says this, Then a demon-oppressed man who was blind and mute was brought to him, and he healed him, so that the man spoke and saw. And all the people were amazed and said, Can this be the son of David? But when the Pharisees heard it, they said, It is only by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, or Satan, that this man casts out demons. Knowing their thoughts, he said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and no city or house divided against itself will stand. And if Satan casts out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? And if I cast out demons by Beelzebul, by whom, your sons, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore they will be your judges. But if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has in fact come upon you. Or how can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds a strong man? Then indeed, he may plunder his house. All right, so lots of great stuff going on here. I'll go pretty quickly over verse 22. We've talked about a theology of healing and miracles elsewhere. So we're not going to go into that today. So why he heals, for what purpose, how is it cross-pointing, all those great things. Uh, but really the background to all of this stuff coming up when Jesus talks about the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, the background is just another healing. He's done many of these things already, but he's just walking through the streets and a demon-oppressed man who was blind and mute was brought to him by other people and it just says he healed him and the man was delivered and he spoke and saw. But what's important to note here, super important to get, is the drama of this response. There's instantly two responses, right? The people say, could this be the son of David? Which is a loaded Old Testament phrase to mean, is this the Messiah? Which means the anointed one, the promised king who would come in the line of King David in the Old Testament, who would resemble him, but would be much greater than him as well because he will be God, and his kingdom will be, actually be eternal. So in other words, we're just saying, could this be the one that God promised would come to just save us to the uttermost? But right there in the crowds, you have the complete opposite, complete opposite response. They think, the Pharisees think, who are the religious rulers of the day, one camp or, or sect of religious rulers, think it's just Satan. It's the work of the devil. It's by Satan that Jesus has the power now to, to cast out demons. So, again, is this the sent one of God, the Savior, or is this the devil? It's like stark contrast, right? And have that in mind as we read this. We're going to come back to the importance of response here again later. But note that there's two camps, and that's true today as well. There's no middle ground with Christ. There's two camps. Is he, could he be the son of David and this positive response to receiving why he came, or 
is he, we may not, may not actually use these words or think this uh, in, in whatever context throughout history, but not all go quite to this extreme, but Jesus is going to say here in a minute, we're all pretty much the same. If we in any way neglect or deny or denounce the work of God and the work of the Spirit in the world, his work to save, we are in this camp of being, again, as he's going to say later, a brood of vipers or a child of Satan. So we'll come back to that here in a little bit. But just notice this contrast right in the same crowd to what he's doing with his exorcism and these healings. But for right now, Jesus knows their thoughts. He's God, so he can hear their thoughts. And he uses them as an opportunity to expose how logically false they are and to pronounce the arrival of the true kingdom of God. So in other words, he says, every kingdom divided against itself will be laid waste or it just can't stand. He also says, if I'm casting out demons by Satan, then who do your sons, or other Jews at times, cast demons out by? So he's trying to put it back on them and say, you've seen this happen on lesser levels as well amongst your own people. So if if they're not casting them out, or if they are, then then who am I casting out demons by uh, as well? So trying to put it back on them and just make them see how logically false it is. It's like, kingdoms divided against itself cannot stand. So it's kind of a silly statement to make. But then he states it inversely. And positively, and says, but if it's by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. And later, I am here to bind up the strong man of the house. And again, a reference to Satan. So he is saying, and what's cool about this is, logically, if you follow that, he's a, again, he's a master at this. He uses interactions with people and questions people have uh, from false motive or pure or a miracle or something, or quoting of the Old Testament, to point people back to himself. In this case, the kingdom of God is here. And in one sense, of course, he's not casting out demons by Satan, but he's saying even if that were true, there's no positive spin on Satan or the kingdom of darkness here at all, right? Because if Satan is divided against himself, he's going down. And if the kingdom of God is in fact here, if by the spirit of God I'm casting out demons, then in fact the kingdom of God has come and I'm binding up the strong man, reference to Satan again. I'm going to plunder his goods, and he's going down. The end of evil is here. He's saying either way. You know, he's obviously lining with that latter perspective, but he's just saying God's kingdom has arrived. Evil's days are, are numbered. Again, this is the battle he's coming to, to wage and to fight perfectly and to win for us uh, on behalf of, of his people, of all those who would believe someday in his amazing grace shown to us on the cross. And he's just using this opportunity to announce it and to denounce the work of evil in, in the world to the glory of God. So, and again, the misperception here for a lot of people, even people right here in the crowd, is they're expecting Jesus to gather people around him to take up arms against the Romans and to lead a charge. And he's saying things and doing things like this. Delivering the demonized, healing the deaf, making the mute speak again, talking about forgiveness of sins. It's, it's, crisp, it's becoming all the more crystal clear as the, you know, the... the steamroller of his ministry just kind of plows through the first three years here on the way to the cross. It becomes more clear that this is why I've arrived. Evil and sin and darkness and Satan and your old hard hearts, that's your greatest enemy. You've got to believe that. And what we understand to be the problem of Scripture, the problem of our lives, and what we fashion as a Messiah are inextricably connected. You know, what you believe your greatest problem is, it's likely that that's going to influence what you want Jesus to be, even if it's not true. So if you want, if, if, if your greatest problem you think is a messed up government in America, you're going to probably want Jesus to be a little bit politicized. And people do that all the time. But if, if your greatest problem is separation from a holy God and, you, and, you're, and you're, you're lying there as a rotting corpse spiritually, incapable of doing any good before God whatsoever, you're going to cry out for a savior. Not a moralist, not a good teacher, not a political zealot. You're going to cry out for God himself to somehow reverse the curse that you've brought into the world, that we all have, and onto your lives. So again, the problem and the remedy are inextricably connected. You've got to understand that when you read your Bibles. And you could be barely familiar with the scriptures, but you're still a theologian because you have some thoughts about Jesus and thoughts about the problem. And so you have some take on that, no matter how infantile. And so just understand that. What does the Bible say about the pro- what's my greatest need, and what do I think it is? Do they relate? Are they connected or not? A lot of times they just aren't. Even as Christians, we just kind of waver off. Oh, yeah, we have to be reminded of these things, that I have a bigger problem than just the stuff I've got going on in my life. Not to minimize those things. God cares, but 
there is like a, an archetype problem here. <laughs> Even Jesus talks in these terms here by saying strong man of a house and then plundering goods later. There's many faces to evil, but there is a strong man. There is a devil. There is evil. There is sin. There is death. And he's going to bind up that strong man through his work, his ministry here is beginning that. But he's going to do that ultimately on the cross for us. And then, you know, flowing from that, as if that were the headwaters and all the rivers of that kind of flow out, he's going to address all the rest of the corruption uh, in, in the world as well, the fallout from sin, you know, so you, you name it, huge list to that. So anyway, that's what Christ is doing here. He's using this as an opportunity to announce the arrival of the kingdom and to further explain why he came in into the world to battle darkness and the spiritual armies of evil, including our sin. All right, Matthew uh, 12, 30 to 32. Let's keep reading. Whoever is not with me is against me. And whoever does not gather with me scatters. Therefore, I tell you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven people. But the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. And whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven. But whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or in the age to come. All right, so I want to set up this passage here with verse 30 to begin. He's talking about exclusivity here. So the demands of the kingdom are very precise and they divide like a knife. So notice what he says. Whoever's not with me is against me. Whoever's not with me is actually against me. And whoever does not gather with me scatters. So the person and work of Christ, the demands of the kingdom of God in terms of what he's teaching about himself and the cross, anticipating that. When he says, follow me, take up your cross and follow me. Where I looked at that a little bit earlier and will again before this series is, is over. Everything divides like a knife and is very precise and does not leave room for neutrality. God, understand that. This is one of the many places in scriptures where this comes out. There are two responses and two alone to what Christ claims to be and what he's done in the world. There is no middle ground in terms of being agnostic or being, or being neutral. He says here, being neutral is actually being against Jesus. So if you're not with him, but you're not necessarily against him, Jesus is saying, well, actually you are. In your neutrality, you've set up camp against me and are still uh, rebelling against me and you're my enemy. So what this is saying is, and this is pulling from other places of Scripture as well, we're all of us born into active rebellion against God. There's no third camp of agnosticism or neutrality. Uh, we're all born into that active rebellion. It's not something that we... We decide later, when someone comes to us, maybe for the first time, missionary or a friend or uh, at church or whatever, whoever that first person was that opened the Bible to you and said, this is what the true claims of Christianity, this is what the Bible says here about Jesus. This is why he came. It's not as though in that moment, though that's a significant moment, obviously, but it's not as though it's only there that we can choose Christ or not Christ to, re to continue to rebel against God or to lay down our arms and surrender. Before that, Jesus is saying, you are, you are still against me. So it's the camp of rebellion. It's the camp of sin that we're born into and inherit that God plucks us out of and brings us over here to the camp of grace where we lay down everything and say, it's all about you, not about me. You've saved, I haven't. So that's really key. God does not pluck us out of this neutral purgatory area or something where it's like, well, we're kind of born into this. We could go either way. Actually, no, we're born, the Bible says, into sin. We inherit sin. Not just what we do, it's in our blood and by nature the Bible says. So that's the case. There's only two camps. Only two. And this is huge, by the way, too, for that whole defense of, and some of you are familiar with this argument, some of you aren't, but it's common to talk in the church and theological circles and seminaries, whatever, just about the whole um, hypothetical situation of people living on a random island in the Pacific Ocean who have never once heard the gospel or seen the gospel depicted or demonstrated ever. And the idea is, is God going to hold them to, the, to an equal level of account or not? Do they have an excuse in that situation? And the answer to that is, with this verse and many verses like this in the New Testament, uh, all of Scripture, is no, they have, they have no excuse. And they are held to equal account as people who have actually heard the Bible and rejected it. Because there's no neutrality. If you're not with Christ, you're actually against him, the Bible says. So if you're wondering that, I've ever wondered about that perspective, this is one of those verses to encourage you with. This is one of the greatest impetuses, is that a word, is that the plural? Whatever, uh, for mission here is that people have to hear. 
They have to. No matter where they are in the world, no matter how much neutrality we might think they have in terms of their spirituality and how much they've heard or not heard the gospel, they have to. If they're not with Jesus, if they haven't responded yet, they're still against him. God loves them. He still is pressing the gospel probably into their life somehow. And they're alive. They're still breathing. God's patient with them. We should express that love and patience and salvation by moving towards people and, and preaching the gospel. So, and that's just not a whole distant island whole thing here. That is, that's something in our context as well. If you guys have people, you know, maybe it's true for some of you here today as well. But for those of you who have people in your life you, you think are neutral spiritually, they've never really read the Bible ever. They've never been to church. Uh, but they've, they also didn't really grow up in a situation where their, their parents denounced Christ or denounced the gospel. or They've never actively been anti-Christian. Obviously, they're just very agnostic or kind of, I don't care, I don't know yet. People in those situations are still against Christ. They're still an enemy, like we all were. <laughs> if, you're a, if you're a Christian here today, if you believe the gospel, you were once in that same camp, born into rebellion, setting yourself up and fashioning an idol of yourself and bending the knee to it and saying, I don't need God, I need me. Or I need something else or someone else or some other God. That's sin. That's what we're all born into. That's what we need salvation from. So, and that's mission. That's why we're sent to go to uh, the corners of the earth, really, but it begins right here in our neighborhood. It begins right here in South Minneapolis, right here in the Twin Cities, right next to you, who you work next to, who you know, who your friends are. That's where, it's, that's where it goes and stays. So, all right, and then from there, of course, uh, uh, beyond. So the, so the setup here is exclusivity, and he starts to make it personal. So going back to the whole context here, he starts talking about the kingdom of God on a larger level. And it's here. God is here to save. Then he starts to turn his head and get really specific with people there who are, who are listening to him and who, who are heeding the challenge here and listening to this call for repentance, call to belief, call to not reject, reject the devil and uh, or reject God and not to support the devil or promote the devil uh, by crediting him with all the good that they're seeing before them. So it gets very personal and starts talking about this idea now of the unforgivable sin. So the tension here then arises in verse uh, 31 and following when Jesus says a couple of things. First, all sins will be forgiven, but then he qualifies it and says, except blasphemy, which means extreme slander of the Holy Spirit. So all blasphemies, all slanders of God, all rebellions against God, all sins are forgivable. That's this overarching, very comprehensive statement. But then he says, uh, after that, except this one thing, except rejecting the work, reject the person and work of the Holy Spirit, blaspheming his work in the world, um, which of course raises antennas, right? I mean, at this point, if you're here listening to this, maybe some of you have just, this is the first time you've ever heard this passage preached or read at all. It should, but wherever you are, it should raise some antennas because we should think, have I committed that sin? Is it possible to think we're saved but have committed that sin, even unknowingly, in the past, and actually not be saved. So in other words, is this kind of like the wild card of damnation here? No matter what we do with Christ, no matter how much we pursue him uh, now in the present, is it possible that if we knowingly or unknowingly slandered the Holy Spirit of God to not be saved now? Uh, or I think one of the great questions to ask here and answer is, why is speaking against the Son of Man, reference to Jesus himself, he's talking about himself, why is speaking about the Son of God safer than speaking against the Holy Spirit? Why is speaking against Jesus safer than speaking against the third person of the triune God, the God, the Holy Spirit? So it just, just begs an answer, right? And it's a little bit abstract here as well. He's hanging this out there and just referring to blaspheming the Holy Spirit, uh, but not quite explaining that in as much detail as maybe a lot of us would like, you know? It's kind of like I was thinking this week, it's kind of like a guy who has a, maybe an older mentor or something who's dying, but trying to get some final advice from from his mentor, basically on his deathbed, but they're on the phone, and, and this older guy's like, there's just one thing you've got to know, you know, just the, just the one thing, and this is, this is what I live my life around, it's the most important thing that I can give to you um, before I die, and then you lose the connection on the phone, <laughs> you know, or something, it's like, no, it's kind of like that, right, it's kind of like that feeling of, okay, well, this, there's just one thing, this one blasphemy, this one sin's not forgivable, but what is it, you know, like, tell us, it's like this, gosh, Anyway, it just kind of has that feel, for, at least for me. But anyway, so, uh, any, so I think that sometimes our application, and some of you guys are hearing this for the first time. Others of you have maybe formulated some kind of position on this. There's probably a spectrum here. But wherever you are, 
it's common for our application of this concept, what is the unforgivable sin, to get too rigid. What is that, batteries? Should we switch it up? It kind of did it, it did it when I moved it again, so, yeah. All right, so um, sometimes, again, our application gets too rigid, too precise. It doesn't factor in the greater forest of scriptures. So great just initial encouragement for you guys when you interpret this. We'll do this this morning as practice, but anything, this is true. Uh, take in the greater wealth of scripture. What does the rest of the scriptures have to say about the Holy Spirit, about sin? And factor that in. Plug that, the greater forest of of the word of God, factor that into our interpretation of this one single tree. And a lot of times, for whatever reason, we just don't do that. I feel like when I hear this passage taught a lot of times, uh, and for me, in the past when I've read it, I tend to just hone in sometimes on just this immediate context and forget other things that Jesus has said or other things Paul has said or other New Testament authors or God has done or just the work of the Spirit. What is that? We'll come to that, back to that here in a minute. So, so I have two emphases here to consider. So we're going to address this question. What is the unforgivable sin? Two emphases here to consider. First, its ongoing nature of the unforgivable sin. And second, uh, connecting that with the work of the Holy Spirit, not just the person of the Holy Spirit. So that's the two things. So we'll start with the first thing, its ongoing nature. So we shouldn't think of this sin that is something that we declare once, even unknowingly, that can never be forgiven. I mean, such a thought just runs contrary to everything we know about God and the nature of salvation in the Bible. Even right here in this passage. Don't miss this verse in verse 31. All sins, every sin, every blasphemy, every slander against God, every rebellion that we stage against God will be forgiven. That's the gospel in this passage. It's comprehensive. John 1.29 says, Behold the Lamb of God who died for the sins of the world. What's the gospel? There you go, right there. The Lamb of God, the sacrificial Lamb of God, a reference to Jesus, he died for the, it's comprehensive, for the sins of the world. Or in Romans 5.20, when sin increases and it gets bigger all the time throughout the Bible, God adds the moral law, like the Ten Commandments in the Bible, to actually make sin worse. So that will reach out for something else besides law, God himself, to save. So that's, that's the greater argument here in Romans 5. But in context, he just says, when the law just serves as a mirror and makes us dirtier and dirtier, it shows us that dirt more and more and more and more and more again. We don't use the mirror to clean our face. We go to the cloth and the soap. And Jesus is the, the cloth. And so we don't use the law, the mirror, to clean ourselves, just like we don't use a mirror to clean it. We go to something else. Mirrors point us elsewhere. And Jesus and law, laws in the Bible point us elsewhere. But here's the good news. When sin increased, grace abounded all the more. Whatever you've done, whatever you thought, the darkest corner of your soul, Jesus has said, I've died for that. I've come to rescue you from that. That's the amazing, that's the amazing good news of the grace of the gospel. Let's test. Hello. You guys hear me? All right. Hopefully that worked. Thanks, Dave. All right. So, uh, and then also I thought, too, of, is that this thing? I'll just take it. Yeah. That's so weird. It might be this connection, but test, test. I don't think it's worth it. Yeah. All right, thanks, Steve. All right, here we go. Let's try again. Uh, last thing I thought here, too, was of the Apostle Paul. Some of you know his story in uh, the New Testament, but before he was a Christian, he was killing Christians, uh, literally, and imprisoning them, dragging them from their homes and persecuting them on that level. Jesus says, he appears to him and says, why are you persecuting me? So he's actually persecuted because the church is the body of Christ in the world, the metaphorical body. He's forgiven for that. I mean, think about terms that he would say is the chief sinner as well because of that. So it's like Paul says that's the highest sin in one sense, and it's forgiven. So how can there be something past that at the same time? So logically and theologically, it follows if we blaspheme, sin, or reject God on whatever level for however long, and then we turn to Jesus for forgiveness, it will be washed away, period. His grace is always bigger than sin. Never stop believing that. You could be a, the strongest and most mature of believers. The whisper you will hear when you reject God and sin as a believer is, this one's 
not atonable. This one, it's one too many. This one's too big. You still wrestle with this? It's been too pervasive. God can't heal you of that one. That's the lie you'll hear from Satan, from the strong man here, that Jesus is coming and expressing his strength against, against by exercising and then denouncing the kingdom of darkness has had its end, and then here demonstrating just in a greater biblical sense that my grace is always, always, always stronger, and all sins are, are forgivable. So with that as background, Jesus here, though, is not, so he's not talking about this being a once, just this one thing that we say or declare, even unknowingly. What Jesus is talking about is the set of the life, the ongoing nature of it. The Pharisees here were in a present entrenched state of rejection and crediting evil with good. So think about it more of an entrenched present state that they're in, not just this one past tense. This is, remember, this is the context Jesus is addressing this. They are denouncing the work of God in the context. They're seeing God move, and they're saying it's actually evil, and they're not crediting God with the working out of that, of that good. So, but the continuing nature is key. Leon Morris says in his, in his um, commentary on this passage, they called good evil. The Pharisees did. People in such a situation cannot repent and seek forgiveness. They lack a sense of sin. They reject God's competence to declare what is right. It is this continuing attitude that is the ultimate sin. And that's key right there. So that's the first facet of it. Strong biblical theme, by the way, as well. When the Bible talks about uh, sin, but also flip this on its head and talk about it in a positive sense, when it talks about our faith, the Bible is way more concerned with you today, me today, in terms of what we think about Jesus now than what we thought about him yesterday or 10 years ago. Conversion is past tense a lot of times in the Bible, but the great call for the church is test yourself now. What do you believe about Jesus? Who is he? What did he claim? Are you trusting him 100% or 80 or 10 or 0? Uh, who is he to you? When, you? when you read about him and hear about, hear about him, how are you responding today? That's the call of the scriptures is the continuing nature of belief. And it actually says if we don't continue in belief and in faith and in trusting Jesus to the very end, we've proved that we never first believed in him at all. So one of the ways we demonstrate that our past tense faith and trust in Jesus to forgive is genuine is by persevering in that throughout our life. So we need the church for that. We need each other for that. We need constant gospel reminder for that all our days. It's, it's the life raft. It's the only thing God has thrown to us is himself in Jesus. And, and we need that constantly, constantly, constantly. We don't graduate from it. We need to keep basking in it. Otherwise, we're on the risk of drifting off. So, again, flip that back in its head then, and this is also true in this sense, the continuing nature of the, of the unforgivable sin, the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. If it's continuing, that's the red flag, not the worry that, oh, I, once, I wonder if I've committed that once in the past. We should not fear that. So I want to make sure that's clear. A couple of disclaimers. The blasphemy of the Spirit is something we should not worry about having done in the past if we're in a current state of belief and repentance in the gospel and adherence to the gospel. So we should not worry about a past tense do it if we're currently believing in Jesus because all blasphemies are forgiven. So it's not the simple words of blasphemy or slander against the Holy Spirit or God anyway. It'd be inconsistent, I think, with the Bible's view on salvation to say that it really angered God when we slandered the third person of the Trinity and so much so that he decided that the blood of Christ would not cover that one sin. You know, the Bible never talks in those terms. It never talks as though the blood of Jesus can't really cover this one sin. It talks more about the ongoing present state of, of, this, of this sin. So I want to be sure this is clear. I'm going to come back to more of these things here, too, as we go on. But one thing I want to talk about before we get there is the second thing, which is the relationship uh, with the work of the Holy Spirit. So the first thing is its ongoing nature. Second thing is closely related, it's, it's um, relationship with the work of the Spirit. So just like Jesus' identity and mission are so closely connected in the Bible, so it is with the Holy Spirit. The person and work of Christ are so connected. It's, it's the same with the Holy Spirit. So then we have to ask, when Jesus is talking about the Spirit here, he's not just saying the person of the Holy Spirit, he's talking about what's connected with him biblically. This is why it helps to back up a little bit and ask, when the Holy Spirit comes up in Scripture, what is he doing? What's the main biblical task of the Holy Spirit in the Bible? When we ask that question, the answer is, it's always tied to the work of pressing the gospel and the saving work of God into people's hearts. Always. He's inextricably linked with just saving people. 
So and like in John 16, 8, for example, these are Jesus' words, different gospel. He comes to convict the world of sin and convict the world of righteousness. So he said, when I go to the Father, when I die on the cross for sins, I'm going to send my spirit into the world. He's going to show people their sin and their need for God-given righteousness, God-given cleansing, God-given salvation, God-given healing. So the work of the Spirit here is just tied with saving people from their sins. That, we sang about that earlier as well in a couple of the songs actually we did this morning. We begin by the Spirit, Paul says. And I'll read a verse actually from him in Galatians. Listen to this. Galatians 3.3 Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? So Paul says, when you first believed in the gospel of Jesus Christ, that he died for your sins, he rose again, defeated death in your place, you begun by the Holy Spirit. He worked in your life to save you in that moment. But the Galatians here are, are running the risk of neglecting that. They're running the risk of, of downplaying it and starting to play up the fact that they're pretty good people. And now they're continuing by the works of the flesh just means the works of the self or by being good people. So that's the context there. But the, the key phrase is begun by the Spirit. If you're saved here today, you began that race of faith by the Spirit. He prompted you to believe. He moved in your heart to appreciate and adore the things that God did for you on the cross. He put a missionary in your path. He brought you to church. He he urged you to dust off your Bible and actually read it again. Or whatever the context was surrounding your conversion, that was beginning by the Holy Spirit. The Spirit worked in your life. That's the work of the Spirit. So to convict the world of sin and to convict the world that God is righteous, we are not, and the only hope for sinners like us before a holy God is Jesus and him crucified. Period. That's it. The Spirit brings that message through the Bible, through messengers, but it's always the work of the Spirit through the church that, that does that. So that's the key here. To blaspheme the Spirit is to reject all of that. I want to make sure that's clear. To blaspheme the Spirit, then, is to reject his work of saving people. That's it. It's not rocket science. It's not actually anything new at all. It's just saying that when we disbelieve the gospel, when we look at what God is doing in the world or in the Bible and say, God actually didn't come to save me from my sins, and in that way work in the Spirit and the world in my life, then you're unforgivable. You're in a state of unforgiveness presently, which, again, not new, right? God is not a universalist. Not all are saved. He only saves those who come to him through his son Jesus and say, the cross is that avenue. It's that way. It's that way back into the garden of his presence. It's the only way back. He died for my sins in a way that I couldn't. No one could. He's the only God, the only Savior. And that's a, working, that's a work of the Spirit thing to know and read and hear and believe and if we see that in whatever way possible, if we look at that and say, it's not God, I don't believe it, not true, the Bible actually doesn't say that, or explicitly credit it to Satan, whatever the means of rejection, we are blaspheming the Holy Spirit and the work of the Spirit in that moment and rejecting God in the process. And in that present state, then, we are unforgivable. doesn't mean we're lost forever. It just means we're at that time committing that unforgivable sin. And it's actually what you see in this passage, too. Remember the context. Jesus heals a demoniac, makes him speak again, makes him hear again, calls it the work of the Spirit. Remember that in the passage? He says, I've worked by the Spirit to do that, explicitly. It's the Pharisees, then, that neglect that. So Jesus is healing, saving, delivering, purifying, and the working of the Spirit's working through Jesus to do it, and the Pharisees are rejecting that. So in the same way, when we're confronted with the message, whether it's, you know, for us or in a community or if we're the messenger, if we just hear about it, whatever it is, objective or, or subjective, when we hear about the cross and the ultimate healing that happens there, when Jesus says, I'll deliver you from your demons if you believe, I'll take your, your deafness away, I'll make you speak again, I'll, I'll deliver you, I'll redeem you, when we're confronted with that message, that's a working of the Spirit. And we have a choice there. Do we believe that or not? Is that the work of God or not? It's the same thing. This is a small slice of it, but the ultimate manifestation of Jesus delivering demoniacs is the cross because we're all demonically influenced. We're all sinners. We're all full of darkness and all kinds of evil things. And God speaks light into that. It's like he did in the beginning when he made the world out of nothing. He speaks light into it. He saves us. He purifies us through his son. And that's the work of the spirit that we're seeing neglected here, denounced, disbelieved in, and in that sense, they're, they're disbelieving and, and blaspheming the Holy Spirit. Does that make sense? 
It's actually quite simple. It's just veiled in some abstractness. You just have to step back a little bit and say, what's, what's the Holy Spirit do? Not, not just saying, I blaspheme the Spirit. Oh, bummer, I said it accidentally. I'm done. That's just silly. You know, it's saying, what does the Holy Spirit, what's his work in the world? His work is always tied with saving people through the gospel. So really, to blaspheme the Spirit is just to reject his work in saving people, which again, the Bible says from every angle imaginable elsewhere. This is just one special angle on it that Jesus gives. So again, to be clear, don't worry about committing that sin past tense if you're in a current state of belief and repentance in, in the gospel of grace. I also thought this week, if you guys know Richard Dawkins, author of The God Delusion, anybody? Who uh, set up this thing, a few of you? Uh, recently, not, I guess sort of recently, uh, not too long ago, this thing where he, uh, a vocal antagonist, by the way, against Christianity especially, but all religions, uh, staunch atheist, uh, set up this thing where in light of this passage, he asked people to videotape themselves blaspheming the spirit and just denouncing God in general and upload it to this website. So if you, if you, if you Google this or Google Dawkins and blasphemy challenge, you'll, you'll get a whole uh, thing of videos. It's chilling to watch, and it's super sad and scary, chilling all at once. Uh, but I think even, I mention that because even that, to look at all those people, many of whom are very young, to look at them and say, they're lost because of this. There's absolutely no hope. We shouldn't move towards them and, and teach them about a, a Savior who crushes blasphemies is silly. Yes, they're presently in a current state of unforgiveness because they're, they're neglecting Jesus and the gospel. They're blaspheming the work of the Spirit. They're saying, he's not real. The cross didn't really happen. And if it did, salvation's not wrapped up into it. A guy just died 2,000 years ago. And they're neglecting God and the work of the Spirit in that. But again, to say they're lost forever is missing the entire point. It's just saying presently they are. But if they repent and come back to Christ and ask for their forgiveness of that sin and every other sin they've ever thought or committed, the millions, uh, the stuff that's just ingrained in our DNA, that darkness, Christ is sufficient. He is able to save. Glory to God, right? Because we've all done that. Maybe we haven't videotaped ourselves and posted it, but we've all been born into that same kind of rebellion. God's in the business of saving his enemies, not good people, his enemies like us. So just look at people like that and say, it's a picture of me. I've also staged a rebellion. It doesn't matter how much but God is, loves his enemies. He's going to forgive. He has through his son. So um, anyway, just to mention that as well. And he died for all, and that's, that's the key. So anyway, let's finish up here with this last section. Matthew 12, 33 to 37. Uh, Jesus says this and continues to encourage this response. Either make the tree good and its fruit good, or make the tree bad and its fruit bad. For the tree is known by its fruit. You brood of vipers, how can you speak good when you are evil? For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. The good person out of his good treasure brings forth good, and the evil person out of his evil treasure brings forth evil. I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak, for by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. So two quick things here. First of all, I think Jesus loves these guys. Even though they're blaspheming the Spirit presently in that moment, he says all sins will be forgiven. Like he's actually talking about forgiveness still, but saying some very, very hard things at the same time. He says, you are a brood of vipers. That phrase means you are essentially a child of snakes. And if you, again, step back and get the bigger picture biblically, who's the ultimate snake of the Scriptures? Satan is. So basically what he's saying here is you are a child of the devil. And Jesus gets very clear in John 8 about that as well. So we know that's in his mind. He's not just saying this wasn't some contextual phrase that, you know, meant something just kind of bad, but, you know, not demonic. He's saying you are actually a child of the devil by saying brood of vipers because the Satan is the ultimate viper of the Bible. So then he says you seek to credit evil with good and to glorify him. And in the meantime, you seek to defame God. And here you are evil, incapable of speaking good. This is where we have to start to read ourselves into this and say the Pharisees aren't especially bad and we're not that bad. They're actually, they're actually pictures of us, like I talked about before. We are all born into one, we're all born into the one family. We're all born into being a child of the devil because we all, like him in the very beginning, defamed God and set up ourselves as gods over him. We're all like in his image in one sense. But that's what makes adoption so important biblically. God says when you're saved, you're adopted you move from slave to son. You're adopted into the family of God. Loved like a perfect, loving father uh, to, 
to a lost child but an adopted one that he chose. I mean, it's awesome. So, but only, again, there's no third family. It's just two. We're all born into the one, and God is plucking people out of the one, literally plucking people out of hell into his camp and saving them forever, and he's doing it. So it's just a beautiful image, uh, but it's a side point. Anyway, this is where we start to really get this darkness stuff and this contrast of darkness and sin and light and, and salvation. And I think it's really, really important to understand here and to get both because, like I said before, your understanding of the problem of Scripture is always related to the remedy. And so Jesus says here, not, you're doing pretty well, kiddo. Keep it up. You know, we don't have a Savior that kind of came into the world and said, kind of pat us on the back and said, yeah, you know, pretty good person. I know you're not perfect, but try to keep at it. Kind of gave us one of those, you know. And he's not the kind of Savior. He comes into the world and he says, you are evil, <laughs> you know. Like, talk about a contrary to our culture image or a message, right? We're, we're told constantly that we're good. We're inherently good people. If we try hard, that we can do anything we want. But Jesus looks people in the eye and says, you are evil, and I love you, and I will forgive you. You see both there? Those are both equally important biblical messages to get because they're so related. If you drop one, the other goes with it. We have to get both. Jesus says, I have come to, to, to declare that the world has fallen, that it's evil. He looks people in the eye and says, you are not good. He's doing that to us today as well, right here through his word. Hear that for yourself. Jesus says, you're evil, but... I'm also talking about forgiveness. It's not the end. I love you. If you drop one of those two things, we instantly cease to think in a biblical manner. We instantly cease to be Christian. Sin has to be bigger than you think. Grace of God has to be even taller and even bigger. That's how Christians think. We take passages like this and we see the problem's way worse than I thought. Way worse. Look at what Jesus is saying to me through this little lens here of interacting with, interacting with the Pharisees. So, but, but he loves us. That's the first thing. Second thing is here, and this leads to it, is who is Christ to you? We know this is on Jesus' mind. He says it very explicitly to his disciples and other people elsewhere. We're going to get to that in Matthew. Who do you say that I am? He's revealing himself. He's calling people to account. He said, I'm revealing myself. I'm fulfilling the Old Testament. I'm healing. I'm delivering demoniacs. I'm talking about forgiveness of sins. I'm making a beeline to the cross. I'm leading there. I'm talking about it. I'm talking about self-denial. I'm leading people there. It's going to get even more explicit in weeks to come, right before he dies. But he's basically saying here, who do you say that I am? There's two camps. He heals people here, and instantly there's division. He heals a demoniac. Some people think he's Messiah, or at least wonder. Other people think devil. Instantly two camps. It's the same on the cross. When we hear that message, even today, even right now, when I present to you, like we do every week, Jesus loves you. He came to save you from your spiritual demons, from your spiritual cancer, and from death itself. Even right now when I said that, there's two responses in this room. Some of you are, I believe, afresh. I adore it. I That's my Savior. I believe it's true. Some of you are neutral on it. And we're glad you're here. We want to be a church where that's always the case, by the way. But you also need to know biblically, you need to hear the hard teaching that you're not okay in that camp, spiritually, ultimately. You're not okay because there's no neutrality with Christ. Some of you flat out have flat out rejected Jesus, or at least up to this point. Uh, wherever you are, though, on those latter two areas, um, there's no neutrality. There's the Christ camp, and then there's the, then there's the sat satanic one. We're a child of one of the two. So we see that here in the passage, and we ultimately see that at the cross every time the gospel is presented here. And that's the presentation we have in a, in a further sense here today that... Um, that I want to end with. Don't miss this. If I go back to verse 30, remember what it says there, verse 31. Jesus says in that context, all sins have been forgiven. Some of you guys don't believe that today. It's true. It's in the Bible. Circle it. Highlight it. Memorize it. God says, God is saying this to us today. He wants you to know. He wants me to know that he's saved you from all of your sins, the darkest of them. He's also calling us against and away from the unforgivable one, which is, again, a present state, a present depiction of just rejecting the former one, just rejecting the fact, what I just said, that he has come to give forgiveness and healing and exorcism and a high, the highest level and deliverance and redemption, all of that at the highest level on the cross. So that's the final presentation for us in this passage. But don't think for a second that somehow you're outside of this context and it doesn't really apply to you. You are either the one that's healed, you're either the one saying, son of David, 
or you're like the Pharisees, or the brood of the vipers. All of us. And all of us are born into that. If you're saved today, you were born into that, former, that latter camp. You were a brood of viper. You're, you're part of the brood. But God saved you out of it. And so, but, so don't think for a second, I'm outside this context, it doesn't relate. It does. It's God's word to us here. It's a demonstration or a picture, a narrative of the drama of the expansion of the gospel around the world today, right in this neighborhood and right here in this very room. It's going forth and response is demanded. Christ didn't leave us to us to say, I think neutrality is possible. I think there's another kind of backdoor way in to the kingdom of God. He, he doesn't leave it to us. And I'm glad he didn't. He loves us too much. He made it very clear there is one way. It's a very wide gate in one way because it's invited to all, all nations, all sinners, whatever you've done, come to me and find rest. But in one sense, it's a very narrow gate because it's only through me. There is no other way to, to the Father. In one sense, it's very inclusive then. In one sense, very exclusive. Got to have both of those when we talk about the Bible and we talk about Christ. Otherwise, we miss the boat again. So, but this is the invitation. He loves you. You are the demoniac. I am the demoniac in this passage. He's done that for you on the cross. Do you believe it today? Where are you today with it? That's what this passage has called us to. It calls us to account on those terms. So as we respond, let me just pray for us. We'll respond through a couple of songs. I just invite you guys to, to freshly place your trust in Jesus Christ. Don't look at the work of the cross and say, that's the ultimate work of the Holy Spirit, and I believe it's of God. I believe it really happened. I believe it can save me. See, when you're doing that, you're not blaspheming the Spirit, and you can never, when you're actually in Christ in that, you can never lose it, and you can never really blaspheme the Spirit again because you've, you've received, you believed in the only way of forgiveness. So let me pray for us, and we'll close. God, thank you uh, for today. Thank you for the gospel. Thank you for this passage, and uh, it's a tricky one, but thank you for granting clarity to it through the person and work of yourself. The gospel always grants clarity to tricky passages in the Bible. It always grants clarity. The work of the spirit idea, the blasphemy of that same spirit, uh, granted clarity to by the work of that spirit, uh, which you are so aligned with, Jesus. And so uh, we give you the glory for healing us demoniacs, healing us spiritual cripples, uh, spiritual, spiritually mute uh, people uh, who can't speak or can't walk upright. Or, God, you come into the world to do that for us in a spiritual level by taking our sins away. Glory to God. God, I pray for all of us here that wherever we are spiritually, we would hear the call of a Savior and just come fall at your feet today. That's what it's about. Nothing else. This is about you doing something amazing, warning us that if we're not in that or believing in that or aligning ourselves with that, we're actually against you. There is only one way, uh, but you have made it a very wide gate because we have to do nothing to earn it, nothing to turn your head to make, it, to make, to make us appear great before you. It's all about you, God. And so in that sense, it's a very gentle, wide gate that you open for us and invite us to walk into. Uh, lead us to do that today, even people in this room who have never done it before. You love them. You've died for their sins. There's, and there's no sin bigger than your grace. Hallelujah. It's, that's true today. God, so I pray that in light of verse 30 again, all sins will be forgiven. We would respond in thanks and a call to, and a call to um, asking of forgiveness again, coming back to the cross, wherever we are spiritually, to believe today the Spirit has indeed worked in the world and he's working in my life right now. I believe that Jesus has called me from the tombs to the glory of God forever. Amen. Amen. Let's stand.